first appeared 52 minutes ago. Mexico City officials, as well as U.S. officials, have confirmed that these are not aircraft from either government's air force. The first sighting was made by an Air Mexico 747 en route from Mazatlan to New York as the unidentified crafts entered Mexico City airspace. They were not detected by radar by either country. The nerds were right. We have to take this. My ballet recital. Listen, Bo, this is very important. Everything people have written about in science books is going to change. The history of the world's future is on the TV right now. We need to record this so you can show your children this tape and say you were there. For your children, Bo. You are seeing a live feed from our affiliate down here in Mexico City. This image has not been adjusted or enhanced in any way. What you're seeing is real. It's unbelievable. Everything they wrote in science books is about to change. I told you. Big brother Jim Kamlick, welcome back. Um, you did not disappoint with the uh, the headpiece. Uh, tell our, our listeners what you're wearing tonight. Well, um, I'm wearing something so the aliens can't get into my thoughts. So this is um, this is actually I got this from Planet Hollywood. It is a replica from the 2002 Signs movie. This is the one that Morgan Hess wore uh, in the in the farmhouse, the family farmhouse, which is one of your two favorite parts of this film. Is that correct? That scene um, when they're all wearing the the, the tin foil hats, the aluminum foil hats, one of the great scenes in movies, in my opinion. I agree. So listen, I got you back to back this week. Uh, I got the podcast tonight, which is exciting. I've been looking forward to this, and then. Why don't you uh, tell everybody what we got on tap tomorrow? We are doing a video village. Um, I mean, it's got to be 20-somethings reading. We're doing the untouchables. So uh, you will find me tonight with more facial hair than I normally have. So my facial hair plan has been um, I'm doing Sean Connery's James Malone, and he has a mustache in the film. You can't grow a mustache in today's day and age without getting, you know, ridiculed in public so tomorrow night right before nine o'clock i'm going to take this down to a very period sean connery and then wednesday it goes off entirely are you uh are you going to go off book tomorrow night as malone like you got it all rehearsed or not what's the man i hadn't even thought about going off book no i don't think i'm going to go off book i think i'm going to stick to it we got some we got some newbies tomorrow and i think i'll just give them the i'll give them the, the full the full deal obviously you're more excited about doing this tonight than you're doing video village tomorrow but we, you don't need to admit that to anybody so we'll just we'll just assume that let's get existential for a moment before we get into it uh, yeah. do you believe in signs i do believe in signs i don't know if i believe okay. in aliens because I, I was ready for that question as well but i i definitely believe in um that there are signs if you if you look for them is there anything that sort of comes to mind in terms of like a moment in your life or something recent something old that was like a, a great example of of you know well in a general sense um i do look for signs from mom every day but let's yep. not let's not go there just yet i think i might want to go there later um, I, one event in my life, um, which I thought I was cast a sign that I picked up on, um, about 10 years ago, I was at my former company and I was contemplating coming back to Davis. Um, Alice was on the way. Um, you know, a lot of life changes getting ready to happen. I know Louise was wanting me to come back to Davis and the company that I was at, that I was at um, they announced that they were moving the headquarters from Gaithersburg, which was a very short commute for me to downtown Bethesda. 
And slap, I got to tell you what, that was like a sign. It was like a frying pan hitting me in the head. And it was the, it was what I needed to see. And I said, I cannot have 270 be part of my life twice a day. <laughs> and I've got a new girl, a new little baby girl on the way. And I said, I can't, I can't come in at night with the stink of 270 on me. And that, that was a sign. And, and, and I, I had great memories at this company, but it was, it was my sign to say, all right, it's time to come back to Davis. And um, I, I think about it sometimes if, if they hadn't relocated, would I have stayed stagnant? Would I've stayed at that company? And I, and I embraced it when it, when it came to me, I was like, yep, this is it run with it. And uh, I, I haven't looked back and I just, you know, I celebrated my 10 year anniversary with Davis in August and they love me. I love them. And boy, I needed that little push. Congratulations on the anniversary. I don't blame you with that. Um, I've driven on I-270 for, I, I guess, when I was living with you, I did that drive down to D.C. every day for about Terrible. six years. A couple of break jobs later, and uh, that that shaves years off your life. That I, I can't imagine that that drive has gotten any easier uh, over the years. I'm going to give you one as well. So mine's also career-oriented. Um, and I've told a story previously to some folks, but I'm not sure if I ever told you this one. But 2008, I'm in New York working at Horizon Media. Really liked my job, loved my company, loved the coworkers. You know, I worked on two clients. I had the History Channel, which I think you knew that I worked on. Um, and I also worked on A&E and they were both like sister networks, part of the same, same portfolio. And uh, I had two very different clients, certainly not going to name names. Um, one, one client roster was uh, very, very friendly, very easy to work with. And the other one was not. And the people that worked with me back then will know what I'm talking about. But I remember one morning, it was uh, we had this big event. We did this big media stunt at Grand Central Station. We wrapped one of the subways, one of the shuttle uh, trains with this creative for a History Channel show. And, and the press was there. The media was there. And, you know, it just a great event. Like my team did a great job doing this thing. And there was a lot of just a lot of good vibes. Right. Head back to the office feeling good. It's early in the day. And I had to have a status call with the other client. And, uh, you know, and this client proceeds to rip my my team a new one like she'd like to do every week. And I remember like whatever good, like good juju I had going into that call was completely blown out of the air. Wow. And I, I was I remember this distinctly. I was in somebody else's office. We were all huddled around someone's desk and my team is there. We've got the client on speaker and she's just going off on us about something or other. And I just I remember like. I just stood there and I, I whispered into somebody, I'm, I, I can't deal with this now. I'm leaving. And I, <laughs> and I actually excused myself out of the call and I should have been on the call. And I left the room. My team was like, where is he going? And I, I just left. I shut the door. I went back to my office. I shut my door and I get to my desk and I lean back and I just did like the, you know, we've all been through this. Oh yeah. You know, you need to gather yourself, right? You need to get it back. And I just like took a deep breath and my phone rings and I don't recognize the number on the caller ID, but I decided to answer it anyway. It's a recruiter calling for another agency that was looking for someone like me to run the HBO business. Oh, there you go. And uh, so this, this recruiter basically tells me about this job and all of a sudden, and this is back when like HBO was doing entourage on the wire and Sopranos right. Like, right at the latter end of like that great, that great run they were on. And uh, you know, this is a long story, so I'll wrap it up. But I uh, I took that job and uh, that job opened up the door for me to get the offer to go to Turner about a year and a half later because uh, Warner owned Turner and they owned sure. HBO. And uh, so I got the job at Turner, was down at Turner for about you know six and a half years. And 
my former client at HBO and ends up going to National Geographic years later. And I ended up getting that job at National Geographic from Turner because of the client at HBO. That's wild. It all comes back to that shitty day. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And then like just even just this past weekend when I, I just published the deliverance episode for this podcast and uh, I published it on Friday afternoon, L.A. time. And then I'm on Instagram and I see that uh, Tarantino's theater, the New Beverly, uh, which you would love, by the way, uh, is promoting deliverance over the weekend. They did like three screenings of it between Friday and Sunday. What are the odds of that? That's pretty cool. We're coming in tonight on the heels of uh, two back to back episodes that I, I really, really liked. I know you did as well. I had Jason Thompson on the talk about First Blood and Scott Saffon talking about deliverance. Um, great movies, very heavy movies. Fantastic conversations, but tonight you and I need to lighten the mood. Um, after all, I think this is probably M. Night Shyamalan's most fun movie. Would you agree? Most fun movie. It's his. Yeah, it's his most. It's his funniest movie. So funniest means fun. Then I would say it's definitely it's definitely his most humor infused film of. Well, I couldn't say his entire set because I don't know if I've seen all of his movies. Is that that's mean? <laughs> that's, that I, M. Night. If you're listening to this, I don't say that to be mean. I, I feel like I've seen. 90, 90% of them. Oh, 90 is aggressive. I have not seen 90% of M. Night's movies. I've seen, I, I'm going to say it's like a, a good 60. Where's the list? We're going to have to dial it up on IMDb, but I haven't seen some of the more recent stuff that he's done. Uh, I've seen a couple, but not everything. So you and I have this long running joke about certain movies that are like your favorite movie of all time. And, and we both know that they're not. So for instance, I know you've said this to me over the years that Philadelphia great film with Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington is clearly your favorite movie ever when I know that it isn't. No, it um, totally is. It absolutely is. <laughs> it's my favorite <laughs> film of all time. I was thinking about this the other day. What else is on that list? So I would say a few good men has probably been on that list at some point as best movie ever. Yep. Uh, City Slickers. Is that, is that fair? Um, City Slickers was, yeah, City Slickers was probably um, on that on that list at one time. Jurassic Park was probably on the list at one time. I'm thinking Sleepless in Seattle might have been on that list at one point. Sleepless in Seattle. You know what I got my kids to watch last weekend? We watched my favorite rom-com of all time. Do you know what that is? I do. It's it's that movie with Duchovny, right? It's, it absolutely um, is. Don't call it that movie with Duchovny. That's disrespectful. Return to me. And they liked it. I was going to say, remember something. I knew there was an R. I knew they that. They liked it. And like Alice, like my nine-year-old, for those people that don't follow me on social media, Alice was like, wait a minute. Did they just put her heart into that woman? I'm like, Alice, spoiler alert, Jesus. Great stuff. Favorite movie of all time. I did have Sleepless in Seattle on that list for you because I know that movie is all about signs. So would, would, you, would you agree that signs was probably on that list at some point. Man, Signs was like no other film. I, I believe it was definitely up up at the top of a list at some point in time. I would say Signs is still in maybe a top 50, and that's a, that's aggressive. I mean, it's got some good company, but I think it's um, it always makes me feel good. And when I watched it with Oliver yesterday, I still found things that I had never seen before, and I was looking at it hard with a microscope, but I was like, and that's any great movie when you get to watch it and you still pick out things after 50 viewings that you've never seen. Signs is enormously satisfying. Um, and I mean that in, in all the best ways. So, like, you know that most of the movies I do are usually in an anniversary year. So yep. that's why 
Signs made the cut. It's it's only 20 years old. It's certainly not as old as many other movies that we've done on the show so far, but um, 20 counts. And I, you know, I watched it again a couple of weeks ago when I was flying back to LA from New York. And I know you just watched it again recently too, but what I'll say is that movie does not feel dated 20 years later. It still feels like it was sort of shot yesterday. Don't you think? I agree with that. Um, but I also think it's, you know, it's the way M night keeps his movies intimate. And I think that had he had it, you know, take place in a big city or in some place that would date the movie or put a date stamp on the movie, it would be a different answer. But I was like watching costuming and I was watching the cars and I was watching all the other stuff. And it's like most of the times they've got like a button down checkered shirt or a t-shirt on so there's really nothing that says oh my god this is an old movie and i think you know the most advanced technology that's in that movie is the baby monitor so they, they did a good job of like you know keeping some of those pieces that can date a film out of it because it's on a farmhouse and it's again all those things are Agreed. sort of like not not part of the narrative so you and i saw the sixth sense together in our mid late 90s when you and i were going to movies like three times a week in an earlier episode you had talked about the uh the cineplex odeon movie card that you and I got to take advantage of. Uh, you want to you want to say a few words about that thing and how it changed your life? Boy, you can never talk about that card enough. Do you have it on your person right now? I don't. I wish I did. Don't, don't play coy with me. You don't know where that card is. Uh, I, I never, I honestly never kept them through the years. So, so they, I they just issued cut them you this and, card because you were writing for the Diamondback. Is that why you got the card? That they should have. I was working at an agency in DC and we placed all the local movie ads in the newspapers okay. for all, all certain studios that I handled as my client. So I worked with all the theater chains like Cineplex Odeon and United Artists and, and all of them. So because of that, they gave me this card. Um, it was actual credit card with my name on it. And I was able to go to any Cineplex Odeon theater any day of the week with a guest. For a dollar. It was a buck, a man. I remember it well. And what I remember even more than that is that most of the times you would hand it to the kid working the desk, the cashier, <laughs> and you'd hand it to him. And they're like, I don't know what this is. And you'd be very like, what do you mean you don't know what it is? Read it. And the person would read it. And they're like, I still don't really know what it is. And you'd be like, well, I guess you're going to have to go get the manager because, you know, that's that's a real thing. That's real currency. And then I'm like, man, let's slap. Let's just pay. We're not paying. We're not paying. We're not paying. Nobody's paying anything. Put your money away. That's a dollar. I've worked hard to get this card. Go get your manager. And I was like, hmm. Dad would have been proud of you every time. Yeah, that that, uh, that card was life-changing. I think back then, you and I, I think there was like one Saturday where I feel like you and I may have seen three movies. Like I think we did like a 10 a.m. We did oh, yeah. like a you know something in the early afternoon. We had went to Hamburger Hamlet for dinner and came back and saw something that night. I don't remember what the movies were, but I know we had weekends like that where we were literally – doing two or three in a day. But I think The Sixth Sense came out in the late 90s. I want to say that movie came out in, don't hold me to it, I think it was 99, if I had to guess. Um, but I remember that was, I think M. Night had done a movie before that, maybe a small indie film that nobody really remembers. But Sixth Sense was the one that sort of put him on the map. But talk about like what a big deal that movie was when it came out. Because I remember like, if, you know, there's, there's always those movies that get that designation of being like a water cooler movie, right? That everybody yeah. talks about at the office water cooler. Not that anybody really does that anymore because everybody's working remotely. So there's no more water coolers. But wouldn't you say like this is like the epitome? Sixth Sense was like the epitome of a water cooler movie. I I completely agree. And I think I posted on Facebook maybe five, six years ago. I said, name the movies that had the biggest spoilers in them. Like what movie could you spoil the most? And I think that between, in my opinion, I think between Signs – 
I mean, between Sixth Sense getting spoiled for you, and I think Shawshank, which yeah, is my favorite movie of all time, by the way, getting getting spoiled for you. And anybody that's like, oh, I figured out, can we do spoilers on this on this podcast? The spoilers a lot. We can do whatever we want. Um, you know, when people are like, oh, I figured out that you know that he was dead. You know, in the first five minutes, I'm like, you did. Because that's amazing. You should you should write movies. You should critique movies. Nobody knew. You weren't supposed to know. Nobody knew Andy was digging for two hours and 20 minutes in Shawshank. You're not supposed to know. So don't tell me you knew because you didn't know. There's not too many movies that come along that sort of capture the zeitgeist like that. I mean, The Sixth Sense definitely did. And and I remember you and I seeing it. And I, I, I was going to bring this up later, but I guess we'll just talk about it now. Like, I don't even remember really loving The Sixth Sense when when I saw it. I, and I, I'm a big Bruce Willis guy. I always have been. Um, and I didn't dislike it, but I, I think maybe you and I saw it maybe a tad later than than when it opened and like it was already out for a couple of weeks and all the, you know, all the chatter was about it. So maybe I went in with some expectations that were a little bit too elevated. And I yeah. thought maybe it just didn't deliver as much as is as everybody had said it would. So did you love it out of the gate or did you like were you like me? That's a hard question because I've seen it so many times now. So for it to be like saying, like, what was my initial reaction to Raiders of the Lost Ark? I mean, I want to say that I loved Sixth Sense from the first viewing, but it's possible that you and I left the theater and said, yeah, I see what they were trying to do. Maybe we need to check it out again. But I seem to remember liking it from the get-go. I've since watched Sixth Sense a few more times through the years, and I and I feel bad because I think I was absolutely hard on that movie. Um, and I it, it's really, really enjoyable, and it's extremely well done for you know our, our first time. It was Again, it wasn't his first film, but I think it was his first mainstream film, and I thought that was, uh, it was the work of an assured film maker to come out with something like that, particularly with that kind of ending, uh, was pretty, pretty powerful stuff. You and I did not see anything else that he's done together. We did not see signs together because I was already in New York City. And I'm fairly certain that we did not see Unbreakable together either. Although I really, really wish if I had to make a list of movies that I wish I got to see with my brother, Unbreakable oh. is very much on that short list. That's sweet of you to say. There's a special place in our heart for that movie, wouldn't wouldn't you think? Yeah, that um well it's it's funny when I think of like Samuel Jackson then versus like Samuel Jackson now, but yeah, that that clicked so many boxes for me. And uh I'm a big comic book reader, as you know. I mean the Marvel movies are my jam. And you know, I was talking to somebody today, we uh we took a new hire to lunch today, and he was saying that he's started watching all of the, you know, the what is it? The AFI best movies, whatever it is. And I said, what movies have you seen? And he's like, well, this weekend, my girlfriend and I saw Citizen Kane. And I said, what'd you think? He's like, I didn't think much of Citizen Kane at all. And I said, you know what? They told me before I saw Citizen Kane that Citizen Kane was like a big comic book come to life. Slap. It was not. It's not a big comic book come to life. And you shouldn't describe it that way. Unbreakable, you could say, is a big comic book come to life. So like, just not don't do that. You're not doing anybody any justice putting me in a chair in front of Citizen Kane. I remember seeing when I sat down in the theater for Unbreakable, and obviously I was pretty excited about a big Bruce Willis guy, Samuel L. Jackson. That's M. Night's second movie. And, you know, there was a lot of there was a big marketing effort for that. So I was all in. And I remember that movie opens with a, a couple of title cards on a black screen about comic books. Right. It opens up with some stats. Yeah, it's like the average comic book is 22 pages, yeah. whatever. I don't have that written in front of me, but yeah, it's something like that. How much they weigh and how many yeah. people read them a year and, and all that sort of stuff. And then when the movie opened like that, I was all in. I was like, all right, this is he's taking me on a journey here. I know that's what M. Night does. But like the fact that he I could just tell that this movie was going to, you know, kind of a, you know, pay homage to to comic books, um, which is not something you see every day. And obviously this is way before 
comic book movies became a huge thing and right. basically have taken over all of Hollywood since then. But um, that's what I love about M. Night. It's those little choices that he makes. You could look at M. Night's career from a pre-signs and I guess post-signs perspective, because as you just said at the start, neither of us have seen all of his movies since he did signs. I mean, I saw the village and I've seen, I think I even saw lady in the water, which wasn't very good. And I, and no. I've seen a couple of others, but um, have not seen everything that he's done, but like everybody saw the first three, right? Six Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs. The trilogy. There's not many filmmakers that sort of come to mind that hit the trifecta like that. Like he, he I mean, those three movies are pretty fantastic films and they were enormously popular, all three of them. You do not see that, that level of success um, nope. very often. And, uh, you know, and again, I think he's had, he's had some clunkers and he's certainly cooled off since then. But um, why do you think, night was such a huge deal i think that i have used the word um intimate before in this podcast yep. i think that he is a very specific master storyteller those first three movies he didn't bite off too much you know there's you can talk about signs and signs is about alien invasion but it's like it's bucks county pa they're not talking about what people are doing in L.A. They're not talking about how New York City, the people are running around screaming while they're shooting water at aliens. I mean, he he sticks he sticks to what he's good at. He he writes a terrific story. It's thriller. It's thrilling. It's chilling. Um, it's not a horror movie, but it could be, you know, spelled as a horror movie. Um, I think he's just got such a specific skill set that it feels like that the movies feel like an extension of each other, even though they're completely different. I wrote down that I think he's, you know, obviously the endings was certainly part of the narrative as far as, you know, why his, those three movies were so successful is I think after the, you know, the, you know, the, the ending of Sixth Sense and people were sort of blown away by that. He tried to do that again and, and Unbreakable, I, I don't think he was as successful with the big reveal at the right. end of Unbreakable, I still I still liked it, but I don't think it worked as hard. But I do think the ending of Signs worked just as hard as it did in Sixth Sense. I thought it was a really terrific ending. But I do think some people probably complain about those last two because it was sort of like M. Night going back to the playbook, right? Yeah. But what was the surprise ending at, in Signs? I mean, because like you could say, oh, it's a big twist. It's a big thing. Like, I mean, is it that they react negatively to water? Like, what would be the surprise that... Bruce Willis is dead. Like, what what would that be? It all sort of comes together, I guess, in terms of like Agreed. Graham, who's played by Mel Gibson. You know, his his faith is questioned throughout the film, which I want to talk about a, a little bit later. And you know, his faith is restored, right? So you've got that. You've got the 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 asthma of his child. Um, you've got the water glasses. You've got Merrill, his brother, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix. You've got his baseball career. It all sort of like converges um, in, a, in a really powerful sequence when this aliens in the, in their house and they're trying to survive. Like, I, so I guess it's more of that, that it's like this big, this big ending where everything sort of comes together. And I think that's what he did in unbreakable and he, what he did in Sixth sense, even if they're different in, in the execution, but it's that big, that big ending. I think everything you just said is the reason why some people don't like this film. And this is a film that I will debate with people because they'll be like signs. Like, and I had people today who shall remain nameless, Todd Seahorn, you're doing, you're doing signs. Like, as if like, of all the movies you can pick, I'm like, well, first off, my brother and I have a connection on signs. We both, I mean, I'll say we like it more than anybody else. I mean, I'm sure M. Night likes it more than we do. But I mean, it's, it's all of those things you can say, well, they're cheesemo. And I don't think they're cheesemo. I think they're like, hey, look, there was a lot of foreshadowing. And, you know, he led you right where he wanted to go the whole time and like right to, you know, Meryl swing away. 
I mean, it was all, the breadcrumb trail was right there. Those early films, they represent a, a very confident filmmaker who I think is, he's in full command of his abilities. He's got a singular vision. And I think that's a, that's a big part of that is directors that actually write their own material. And I know M. Knight usually writes all his own scripts. And, you know, that might be, might be the reason why I love Tarantino as much as I do, because he writes all his own films as well. But, you know, he's, he's, got, um, he's got his influences and they're very much on display in signs, whether it be Hitchcock or, or Spielberg or even comic books. I think M. Knight likes to toy with the audience. As you said earlier, he's sort of manipulating you a little bit. Yeah. And I love that about him. But I think some people probably find that as a turnoff. But I think his movies, at least that, that, that trio that we talked about, they sort of make you feel uncomfortable. And I think as a moviegoer, I think there's a lot of exhilaration in that. There's a lot of joy in that when you're when you don't really quite know where this yeah. story is going. And, and, that, and that keeps you on the edge of your seat, literally. And that's what I love about him. Can I share an M. Night quote that I found online? And I know you probably did the same research that I did, but I thought this was really cool. But he said, I think I take what you might call a B-movie story, deal with B-movie subjects, and I treat it as if it's an A-movie in terms of my approach, my crew, my actors, my ethics, and so on. I guess that's my trademark, or one of them anyway. And like him admitting that it's a B movie, like like I'm not reinventing anything. This isn't this isn't 2001: A Space Odyssey. He's like that's a big bite. This is me in Buck again, me in Bucks County with a family of four dealing with how they are going to deal with an alien invasion. And you know, people criticize that the aliens look like you know a B movie alien, and I'm like. That is exactly what he's saying here. He's like, I'm not going to go out there and reinvent this whole thing. Part of it is like they don't they, they don't look wonderfully, right? This isn't a Sp- Spielberg alien. This is an M. Night Shyamalan. It's not about the aliens, right? Which is ridiculously cool. And I think you nailed it when you said that, you know, you used the word intimate about his films. And I actually wrote down that he makes quiet films. So we're very much on the same page there. Um, and I think the thing that I'm most impressed by him is like, he became a brand, you know, maybe for a short while. And I wouldn't say that 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 lasted. But I mean, he clearly is a name and everybody that's a movie lover today still knows who M. Night Shyamalan is. But maybe, it, you know, that that light doesn't burn as bright as it did in the late 90s and the early thousands. But back then, for those three movies, man, he was a brand and not many filmmakers ever reached that level of popularity a level of success obviously Tarantino has done that and and Spielberg has done that. But I can't list too many that are like filmmakers that become you said you used the word trademark earlier um not many filmmakers get associated with that like that is right. that's rarefied air in my opinion and i think you know that makes him that's a big point of distinction for him and i think um you know the thing i love most about his movies and we'll talk about some of these in a little bit the, the nuances that he has in his films you really need to lean forward and pay attention to m night's movies and every choice he makes is deliberate all his choices are purposeful and and if you don't lean in, I think you actually miss a lot of the magic that he's putting in it. And he's also, when he tells you the story, like the pace is never a frantic pace. The pace is slow, not too slow, but it's slow enough that you're like, here it is. I'm putting everything you need to know right in front of you. I'm giving it to, a, to you at a pace that you can digest and you can get on board. And that's that's when I watched Signs Again with Oliver yesterday. I was like, he does just really the cadence. I would never say M. Night's movies have a cadence problem because they always kind of click along and then they speed yeah. up. And they kind of slow down and, you know, they have the scenes on the couch when they're just talking. But it's just really, really. What's the word a specific? How do you rank those three We're, on Jen Kamlich's list um, in order of, you know, g- give me worst to first. 
Not that any of them are bad because they're not, but like, how do you, how do you personally rank them? Well, I would probably from, from worst to first, probably in the reverse order of the way they came out. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I would, I, but it makes it sound like his movies got worse than as they came out. And I wouldn't use the term worse, but I think that, you know, signs is probably, you know, the, the bronze, I think unbreakable is silver. And I think six cents is because it put them on the map. And I mean, Sixth Sense has, you know, when you get in there and read about all the Easter eggs and all of the stuff that he was doing that you didn't even know he was doing, it's a pretty incredible feat what he put up on the silver screen, in my opinion. I'm a little bit surprised. I didn't, I didn't realize that was going to be your order. I, I thought um, I had a feeling that Signs was going to be one for you. They're all right there, man. We're talking fractions of, a, of an inch. Fractions. Yeah, I think you know where my answer is that, you know, I absolutely have Unbreakable as number one. And I think it's a really clear number one. Um, I do love Signs and Signs is absolutely number two for me. And I would put Six Sense number three. And I know that's not popular. Um, and I, I've already proven that I'm not popular with my Pulp Fiction assessment a couple months ago with, with Lance. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go back there. But I think I, there's a part of me that wonders that if he did Signs as a response to some of the the backlash that he got with Unbreakable, because I, I don't think Unbreakable is his um, most loved film. I, obviously, everybody loved Sixth Sense, and a lot of people really, really loved Signs, if you look at the grosses. Right. But I think Unbreakable was very dark. It was very heavy. Um, again, sort of based on a comic book. People didn't probably understand that, or they probably questioned why he did that. Um, the ending, which to me is enormously powerful, but it's, it's a dark movie. And, and I think that science almost feels like, uh, uh, okay, I did that. I got that out of my system. And I'm going to give you this, this really um, accessible, comforting popcorn movie as, as my third. It almost feels like it was a response to Unbreakable. So I'm listening to what you say. So can I be so bold as to say that Unbreakable was his Empire Strikes Back? I think that's a great, great analogy. I love it. Right. Because when you talk about popcorn and you talk about signs or, and you want to compare that to Return of the Jedi – I mean, I don't think you can get more popcorny than Return of the Jedi, right? A movie that I love. That's not a, that's not a slam on Ewoks, but I'm just saying that was that was pretty light. That was pretty light fare. But I think I think Signs is a little bit deeper than Jedi. I think that's fair. I think Empire Strikes Back probably the best. Uh, not probably, definitely the best of the three. But um, in my opinion, but yeah, dark, um, not easy, and yeah, well, and you don't really walk out of of Unbreakable feeling very good either. No. The ending is a surprise, but it's also kind of a hard surprise, and it's not a pleasant a pleasant outcome. And uh, and I don't think you walk out of there like you do with signs, where everything sort of gets wrapped up neatly. Right. Uh, that's not that's not how uh, Unbreakable ends. And I guess because I like dark movies, I guess that's why I love that film as much as I do because I just it, it it challenges you more than the other two. Fair enough. For anybody that's not seen Unbreakable, or if you've only seen it once, I highly recommend going back and watching it again. I think it's some of the best stuff that Bruce Willis has ever done, and. Um, that movie is that movie works on multiple levels, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. There are two what I would call really incredible moments in Signs. One is the scene where you know uh, Mel Gibson, who plays Graham, he comes back from I think he he went out to do an errand or something, and it's at the point in the film where you know the news is covering the alien arrival pretty heavily. There's a lot of dread. You know that something's not quite right out there, but he comes back and he sees his brother. Uh, Merrill sitting on the couch with his two kids and they're all wearing the hat that you're wearing as we speak. Um, and they're all like, obviously they, they read the sci-fi book that, um, 
that his son had bought at the bookstore and they, they all kind of bought in on like how to you know protect themselves against the aliens. And it's a really, it's a really lighthearted moment. Um, but you know, it's a big laugh. So that, that, that is, that is one. actually there's probably three moments. So that is one where I just laugh really hard. And every time I see the photo of the three of them on the couch with, with the, with the aluminum foil hat, great, great stuff. But then it's the scene where Joaquin Phoenix is, is holed up in a dark closet watching the little TV and he sees the the birthday video. I think it takes place like in uh, Mexico or something like that. Um, and it's the first time that the news actually shows footage of the alien. And this alien basically, they, they, there's a there's a, the camera's kind of running around. It's a little bit erratic. And there's this birthday party with a bunch of kids, and they all run to this window. And the music is going up, and like, and you know, you're about to see something crazy. And then they show like the alien dart across the, uh, the the alley, right, real fast, almost like Sasquatch, almost and, like uh, Sasquatch. And 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 Joaquin Phoenix, he does this reaction where he just like he puts his his hand over his mouth and he just like and he falls backs back. up into the coats, dynamite stuff. Like I I to think that, and we'll talk about this in a little bit when we get into casting. The talk to think that Joaquin Phoenix only joined that movie a week before production because it wasn't supposed to be him; it was supposed to be yeah. Mark Ruffalo. Crazy. And, the fact that he inherited that character and he absorbed that character as well as he did, that scene is unbelievable. It's it's one of the like the great movie moments for me ever. And and you know, people want to argue that with me, that's fine. But that scene is exhilarating and it never, never gets old. Every single time you watch it, it's still as fantastic as it was the first time I saw it. It's funny when I now, as a father of two, and I get to revisit you know, the movies that are my favorite movies and I get to, to what hopefully it'll be their favorite movies too. And when we watched that, I put, we probably watched it maybe two years ago during the heart of the pandemic. And like for me to watch them, the, 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 the genius of that scene is you don't know when it's coming and you don't know how it's coming. So like, yep. you know, he's watching this, you know, the, the woman, the newscast woman, she's like, uh, you know, warning what you're about to see might disturb you. And you're like, what am I going to see? And like, you know, when I watch my kids watch it and like it's all shaky and all the kids run from the one window on the right. They run all the way to the window on the left. And you're like, God, just do it already. Is it coming at the glass? Because at that point, you're like, if this if something comes running at the glass, I'm going to pee myself. And then when you finally get it, it's 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 the most perfect way they could have done it because it's a bad shot. They had to then go back and watch it again and stop it, stop frame. And it's just freaking perfect it's perfect but like this that that the buildup of it oh my god it's 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 one of the highlights of the movie but the other highlight is this really phenomenal speech that mel gibson gives um to his kid brother and they're obviously sharing a private moment while the kids are sleeping about the aliens and and what's going on in the world and listen uh, uh the mic is yours well i'll tell you what before i before i either you know ridiculously mess up the quote or before i nail it um i think that the relationship between these two guys is my favorite part of the movie and you know we're going to talk about faith we're going to talk about all of that stuff in a minute but like they keep coming back to this like merrill looks up to graham so much and like yep. you know the the whole reason that he quit being a minister and all that stuff is right there in the first you know 20 minutes of the movie but the fact that they keep coming back to this like i liked you better when you comforted me you know yep. like i'm your big brother just like graham was merrill's big brother and it's like can you just for like a second with all this shit going on just for a second can you like give me some comfort like i'm in a yep. closet with your kids sleeping on my lap can you give me some comfort 
All right, so the speech goes something like this, and I'm not going to do a Mel Gibson impersonation. Slap, people break down into two groups. When they experience <laughs> something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign, evidence that someone is up there watching out for them. Group number two, they see it as pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. But I'm sure that group number two, when they see those 14 lights above, they look at it in a very nervous fashion because for them, the situation is 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. But they know, but deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And there's people like that. But there's a whole lot of people in group number one. They see those 14 lights, and they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever's happened, there's someone there to look to help them. And that brings that fills them with hope. So you got to ask yourself, Slap, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, that sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or, be, or better way to look at it is this. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? And then he goes on to give his whole speech about, you know, with the gum and the cup and the whole thing. I didn't memorize that. You said something earlier about the brothers. And I that is one of my favorite things about this film is I thought the relationship between Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix is very, very believable. Perfectly cast. I, I know it's not popular to like Mel Gibson today, and he's basically been canceled. And We're not getting into any of that, are we? <laughs> I, you know, but I, but I, you know, listen, I mean, like the guy, he was really well cast and it was a, a, a really different kind of performance for him in this film. And I, he shows a vulnerability that you don't see in a lot of his movies. And I thought the two of them, I just bought the brotherhood um, right out of the gate. And you and I have seen a lot of movies together, not to get all corny here, but like you and I, I've never seen more movies with anybody else in my life than you. Like you, you, you and I have seen, and I would imagine I'm the same for you. Like, I mean, I know Oliver will replace me eventually, but like that was part of the reason why I wanted to do this film. Cause I know this movie is about brotherhood at its core oh, man. and, and you and I are brothers. We, we, you know, we've seen a lot of these movies like this together. So like, it just, it just felt natural to do signs. That's what I would tell Seahorn. That is why we're doing signs tonight. And then I will respond to that. So about four feet to my left, you've never been to my new movie room, but four feet to my left, I've got the drawing of you and I in our tuxedos in, sitting in the red velvet chairs that I had done. God, I had this done 1990-something, and it's yep. at the movies with Kamlik and Kamlik. And it's uh, it was a gift from me to you that I stole back. So it, it feels good that it's hanging on my wall. But uh, it's per- it's perfect. I'll have it for the rest of my days. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at the Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world. Which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. I have become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure. I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, 
And if you like watching them sleep just like I do, get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. I've got it figured. I've had two separate folks tell me there have been strangers around these parts last couple nights. Can't tell what they look like because they're staying in the shadows, covert-like. Nobody's been hurt, mind you. And that's the giveaway. I see. It's called probing. It's a military procedure. You send out a reconnaissance group, very small, check things out. Not to engage, but to evaluate the situation. Evaluate the level of danger. Make sure things are all clear. Clear for what? For the rest of them. Okay, so let's talk about the movie. Um, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Um, the movie was released on August 2nd, 2002. It was a budget of $72 million with a um, opening weekend gross of $60 million. So it did quite well in its opening weekend. Worldwide, $400 million. So this movie was a beast. It was the fourth highest grossing film of the year. Um, the only movies that surpassed it were Spider-Man. Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, and I found this interesting. My Big Fat Greek Wedding was number five. Uh, considered titles, I found this really interesting. Um, working titles at one point was this movie was going to be called The Alien Bulletin, and it was also going to be called Visitors. How do you feel about either of those? Well, Alien Bulletin, not so much. Not so um, much. Visitors, <laughs> meh. I mean, I was trying to work a title, you know, we kept, we keep talking about faith and it can't call a movie faith because then it sounds like it's some priest thing, but um, yeah, I think they got it. I think they got it pretty well. The influences for this film, uh, according to M night uh, were the birds night of the living dead and invasion of the body snatchers. Um, that's all pretty evident. If you, if you know those films, well, you, cer- you certainly see those touches throughout signs. And this movie started shooting on September 12th, 2001, literally the day after um, the, the attacks of nine 11, the cast and crew held a candlelit vigil to mark the previous day's attacks on New York and Washington. Um, and then right after that, they shot the film's most heartbreaking scene when Graham talks to his his dying wife for the very last time. Can you imagine that that was like day one of shooting? Yeah, that's kind of messed up. Let's not do that scene. Let's do another scene. Maybe you got to yeah. change up your shooting schedule. But, you know, that they, they do these things and they plan this stuff in advance. So that's it's hard to believe that that was the very first um, scene that they shot. As I said earlier, Mark Ruffalo was originally cast to play Merrill. Um, he had a brain tumor and had to step down. And Joaquin was brought on about a week or so right before shooting. Um, again, like you would never know that when you watch the movie today that Joaquin wasn't originally supposed to play Merrill. But I thought he did an incredible job as that character. Um, I would have I would have liked to have seen what Mark Ruffalo did with that, though. I do like him as a as an artist. And I think that could have been an interesting cast. Paul Newman and Clint Eastwood both turned down the role of Graham. That ultimately went to, uh, to went to Mel Gibson. The handheld Brazilian birthday party video uh, was filmed by M. Night. And I thought this was interesting that the crop circles were actual real. Um, M. Night is not a fan of CGI. So um, all the crop circles that appear in that movie were all man-made. 
It's extremely cool. The dinner table scene uh, was filmed in three hours. What would your dinner choice have been on the evening of an alien invasion? I wouldn't have said cheeseburger with bacon, extra bacon. <laughs> I'm not sure what it would have been. I guess I probably would have maybe like a like maybe like a penny vodka dish and a glass of wine. I would not have done chicken teriyaki, which is what Merrill did. Yeah, God no. I make a nice baked penne, but it takes me a really long time to make it, and I don't know if that you know that's the right move at that point in time when you know that. Your house yeah. is about to be attacked. I, I kind of feel like I probably want to do something quick and easy, but uh, I hear you on the wine. <laughs> that scene is actually pretty powerful stuff because that's the scene when they actually have a fight and, you know, Mel, Mel Gibson sort of loses his shit for a minute to his son and, um, and he kind of yells at his kid and, you know, everybody starts crying and Mel starts crying and then they all start hugging and, and he grabs Meryl by the shoulder, by the shirt, and he brings him in close and they all do like this big group hug. But I mean, really, really poignant, really powerful. The way that family had that bond and given everything that they've been through with the loss of the mother, I, I just think that's 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 what elevates that movie, in, in my opinion. The director cast himself as Ray Reddy, who is the remorseful driver responsible for the accident that killed Mrs. Hess. Apparently, he never told Mel Gibson that he was going to play that character. So that the day that they shot that scene, when uh, when Mel Gibson and, and Ray Reddy go meet, um, Mel didn't realize that it was going to be M. Night that plays that character. How do you feel about the cameos that M. Night has has made? Because he, he shows up in most of his movies just like Hitchcock did. I don't have a problem with that. I figured it was a shout out to Hitchcock and, and it doesn't bother me. And I was just like I was telling you earlier, I watched um, Sixth Sense yesterday and he gives himself the smallest of parts. I mean, he's a doctor. He's talking to the kid and it's it's barely, you know, it's a bit part. So it's not like he's casting himself. I mean, the Ray Redding thing, that was a little bit of a big thing. Let me ask you a question though, while we're talking about Ray. What was Ray's job in science? He was a veterinarian, right? He was a veterinarian, correct. So here's my theory. So when Mel approaches the truck and Ray is there, right, and it's like this suspenseful thing, the camera pans down. Ray's got a wound on his stomach. Like you could see there's, there's blood there. He's, he's injured. So yep. my question is this. The logical thing would be is that the alien that he's got locked in his cupboard did the damage to Ray's belly. What if this? What if he was treating one of the dogs – that are been going crazy in Bucks County and the dog took a bite at him. Why do we just assume an alien did it to him? Wow. That's really interesting. I never, never made that connection. Right. Cause they, they got all oh, the, the dogs are going crazy. All the animals are going crazy. They're going crazy. Now they, they could have made him any, any occupation in the world and they got to make him a vet. Just something to think about. Well, I mean, yeah. Cause obviously the, the, the dogs play a role in that film as well. And they, they obviously get upset every time, uh, uh, you know, the aliens are nearby. I've, I've read, you know, people complain that M night shouldn't be in his movies, right? If I were a director as, as famous as he was, and I wrote and directed all my own films, I would absolutely put myself in my absolutely. movie. Every, every single time. I mean, again, small role, fine by me, but I would totally do it. And secondly, um, the scene where he actually is in the truck and, and Mel Gibson standing out, out at the window, which is, again, pretty sad and pretty powerful. I think M. Knight's really good in that scene. Oh, good. And then he basically says, you know, I, I don't think they like water. And then he just he's like, I'm sorry about how I, you know, the trouble I caused your family or however he puts it. And then he just pulls off like really fast, really abruptly. I thought M. Knight was great in that. Great stuff. I, I know what I've done to you. I've made you question your faith. Yeah, that's it. Boom. So good. And then he said, be careful. I got one locked in the closet. And then he spills off. And you're like, wait, what? Can we talk about it? Can you just give me another second? You kill my wife. Can we talk about it? 
I mean, and that's another sequence when he approaches that door in the kitchen and, you know, he grabs the knife and like, you know, that the alien's in there and you could see the shadows underneath the crack. And that's 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 great stuff on that clock comes out. But it's not even that. It's like you're like in Mel Gibson's mind. He does the whole thing about, you know, we took your friends away in the paddy wagon and all that kind of stuff. But like he is just like he gets down on all fours and he's looking and then he makes a decision. Screw this. I'm leaving. And he like and he puts the knife down and he starts heading out and it's the camera shot from the from the door and he gets to the next door and he's just like and then like he makes the decision then he's quick then he grabs the knife and he's on his thing and then then the big scare hits but that's classic right there like he's like forget this what am i what am i trying to prove I'm just going to go home. Again, those are those little choices that M. Night makes that are just just phenomenal. I thought the last cheesy factoid I'll mention is that the aliens are actually in the movie for 90 seconds. Now, I have not clocked that myself, so I'm not sure if that's accurate, if that's just BS from the Internet. But um, isn't it amazing to think that this whole movie that's about aliens, there's only 90 seconds worth of them on screen? What is your favorite of those 90 seconds? Oh, wow. Um, well, I mean, we, we talked about the birthday video earlier, and I, you know, birthday even if video. it's... Only shows up for about a second, but that that has to be it for me. But I, I think the best part about the aliens for me is what you don't see. And we're going to get into this in a minute about the use of sound, which I think is pretty tremendous in this movie. But you clearly have an answer. What's yours? I'm torn. When when he when he's sitting on Bo's bed, when he brings her back to bed, and he looks out and he sees that guy up on the roof. That is like man. That is like a heart jumping thing. You're like because like Oliver knew it was coming. Oliver's giving me the hands on his head. And I was like, you've seen this movie before. He's like, but I know they're about to show the guy on the roof. I said, oh, yeah, they are. And it's coming right now. He's like, is it this scene? I'm like, it's going to happen like right now. That's good. And then they give you that. The sound is like. Our science first emerged in the late 70s with renewed interest in extraterrestrial life. They died out by the early 80s, dismissed as hoaxes. This new resurgence is wholly different. The speed and the quantity in which it has appeared implies the coordination of hundreds of individuals over many countries. There are only a limited number of explanations. Either this is one of the most elaborate hoaxes ever created, or basically, it's for real. So let's talk about the critical reception. Roger Ebert gave the movie four stars, which I actually was a little bit surprised by. I thought he would have given it less. Um, His quote was, it's the work of a born filmmaker, which you and I kind of talked about earlier, and we agree. When it's over, we think not how little has been decided, but how much has been experienced. And I think that's actually pretty spot on. What's not spot on is, um, I found this one, Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle. This is what this guy says about signs. The picture is characterized by murky cinematography, dull stretches, and a half-hearted sci-fi plot that shamelessly borrows from The Wizard of Oz and War of the Worlds. This is fill-in-the-blanks movie-making, a little spiritual crisis here, a little family bonding there, a little uplift here, all of it amounting to little more than nothing. Where was The Wizard of Oz part? I was in Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I mean, I was a starring role in Wizard of Oz. I don't see, I don't see signs Wizard of Oz. Where's the connection? I get War of the Worlds. I mean, I get War of the Worlds. I mean, Merrill says War of the Worlds at some point in time. He's like, it's like, it's like War of the Worlds. So I get that. Whatever. You and I have had this conversation many, many times about there are critics that write the review, 
before they even go into the screening room and, and see the movie. And I think this guy, don't know this guy, obviously, but you know, on the heels of like this huge, successful Sixth Sense, a very successful Unbreakable, this guy went into this third movie like, I'm tired of the M. Night playbook. And I think that's why he said that this is fill in the blanks movie making, even if what you said earlier with the quote from M. Night that he was purposely trying to make a B movie. You can't ding him for that. Did he? I wonder if he liked the first two movies. I bet he didn't. I'm going to go out on the limb and say he didn't. This is a pretty broad question. I know we sort of touched on some of this already, but like, what do you love about this movie? Like, what what is it about Signs that makes you, you know, want to get on a podcast for an hour and a half and talk about it? What is it? Can I answer your question and rattle off the? I have, and I think I told you this. I've got, I've got my things. It says Signs Pod Notes, and my first thing are the details. And we talked about M Night just packs without you feeling like he's packed stuff in. But I think a lot of these are the reasons that I love this film. And I'm just going to rattle some of these things off. When they come up out of the basement at the end, you know, when he's like, we got to go up, we got to get the asthma medicine. When they open up the basement door and they're in the kitchen and you see the stars and the planets and the whole thing, like the first time I saw it, I'm like, I don't know what's making those shadows. I don't know when the light is coming through. Why is it that? And then when you watch it again, it's like they basically pulled apart Bo's playhouse in the backyard. The roof was made out of these planetary shapes, and they used that to board up the windows. That's ridiculous. Right? It's, I mean, you're talking about invasion. You're talking about you know extra extraterrestrial stuff. And to have those lights come through, that's one of the things. Bose glassware, a big, huge part of this movie. There's no two glasses the same. Like we are kids from the 70s. You know, we had these misshapen glasses all over, you know, Holbrook. And the fact that like no two glasses are the same. Wonderful. When when the sheriff leaves the first time and she pulls around the roundabout and there's the Adirondack chairs that are out front. Do you know how many chairs there are? There's five chairs and you could be like five chairs. Who cares about five chairs? Well, M. Night does. M. Night is establishing how close Meryl was to this family before yep. the mom before the mom died. It wasn't four, and then Meryl decided, I'm going to move back in and take care of my brother. There was already five chairs set up. That was deliberate, right? There's no way that, that M. Night's just like, I'm going to put out five chairs and let people just figure it out. The scene where um, Graham comes in after he's being scared out in the cornfield, and the kids are washing dishes, and they're having like a water fight. It's just so like ridiculously ordinary, everyday family stuff. Love it. Um, this is Oliver wanted me to include this. We hit pause yesterday when they first showed the news footage and they had the 14 lights over Mexico. And I said, Oliver, that doesn't look like 14 lights to me. So he got up on my, on my big TV right here. He's like, he's like, daddy. I said, I only see 13. He's like, no, these are really close together. That's 14 lights right there. And I'm like, of course it is. Who's going to mess that up? In the movie, when you're saying this to 14 lights, really quick, the first time that, that that Meryl brings the TV into the closet, Graham wakes up, the TV is gone, and he follows the cord. Slap, the first time I noticed that Meryl had to get an extension cord. As he's tracking the cord into the closet, you can see where he had to use an extension cord because it wouldn't reach in the closet. You never would have made it. I saw there was a scene where Meryl picks up a rock and throws it into the corn. And nothing happens, but I felt like it was a that was like kind of a shout out to Spielberg because doesn't Elliot throw something into the into he the does. thing? I thought that was nice. And then they were talking about War of the Worlds. Um, we talked about wind chimes, the family dinner scene. 
the family dinner scene when they're hugging and there's a pan away from them and it goes down to the end of the table to the baby monitor, which is just quiet. And all of a sudden it just lights up like all get out. Great scene. This is the best one. This is going to blow your mind. I've been waiting to tell you this one all day. So they've got the house boarded up and the second dog, Isabel, is outside and there's a shot. And it's you, you can't see anything. All you can hear is Isabel out there barking, barking, barking. And the camera goes from right to left. It passes over the mantle. On the mantle are two dog statues, one on each end. As the camera pans over the dogs, it gets to the left side of the mantle. That's when Isabel gets it. They started out with two dogs, and now there's no more dogs. That is a brilliant shot. That's like a brilliant shot. I've never noticed that before, that, that's, that, that those bookends are there. That's incredible. These are some of the reasons I absolutely love this movie. He's just got it so chock full of... This family, you know, the, the, there's a scene where, you know, Mel, Mel Gibson looks down and he sees the, the wife's craft room where she literally like made stuff. There's a scene where he's walking out with the sheriff and on the porch wall, there is a, I don't know if it's a macrame or a sewing stitched whatever of the house that's hanging on a little thing. And, you know, she made that because, you know, she was into crafts, but she, she had this craft room. He didn't have to put that stuff in the movie. But he put it in there because he wanted the characters to be rich and all that stuff. I'll shut up and let you talk. Early in the movie, you know, when they when they show these like establishing shots of the house on the farm, you hear all these crickets. Right. And like that's that's a sound that you would hear on the farm. But in that scene, when the alien first comes to their house the very first time, the crickets go silent. And you can go back and play it and you'll see what I'm talking about. They completely go silent and all of a sudden there's no noise outside. And so then as, a, as an idiot, I had to then go look up crickets and I had to find out, is that what they do when they are feeling alarmed? And apparently that when crickets feel safe, that is when they start chirping. Mm. And then when they feel like they are in trouble and there's danger, they actually all go quiet. So the fact that M. Night knew that and in this that's movie, the cool. crickets are loud and then they go quiet when the aliens are nearby. That's insane. And then I think the role of water, water is a, is a threat to the aliens in this film. Uh, and, they, they, you know, that's how they end up defeating the aliens at the end of the movie. But in Unbreakable, Bruce Willis plays David Dunn and he nearly drowned as a kid in that movie, that, which they talk about in the screenplay. And then at the end of the film, he had a, he sort of had to face his demon because he gets thrown off that house and he falls into the pool. Yep. And he's about to drown and he gets saved by those two kids that he goes to rescue. I just find it really fascinating that the role of water plays a kind of a key thread and through line in both of those films. That's what makes night. Night. I couldn't agree more. He is a wizard with stuff like that. All the uses of sound in this film, really, really phenomenal. I, I don't know if this movie was, you know, nominated for best sound or not. I, I would hope that it would, would have been. But, you know, everything from the wind in the swings outside, running through the corn. You know, I mentioned the crickets earlier, the, the alien on the roof. And when the aliens break in, like the way you hear them in the attic and you know that they're getting closer and like yeah. you know, that. They have to retreat to the basement because they know they're in the house now. And like the dogs barking, the baby monitor static. That's some great stuff that they use in that movie that captures so much emotion, so much dread just by use of sound. Really great. That's sick. Like, why would an alien cluck like that? That's sick. We talked about the ending already in terms of how, you know, night brings all the themes together. The Merrill's baseball past. The asthma, Bo's obsession with water, Graham's tragedy, it all sort of comes together in, a, in an instant. I mean, its you don't see too many finales play out the way this one does where 
you know, they, they come upstairs, you know, the, the, you know, that the, the aliens in the living room with, 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 uh, with Morgan yet he cuts away to kind of finish the sequence when, when Graham is going to visit his, his wife at the accident scene and he walks up and you see the policeman there and you see Ray on the side of the road, like to take you out of that sequence with the alien, which is really powerful stuff right. to take you back to this so past. That is like a great way to tie it together. And that, I'm not, that doesn't always work in movies and it works brilliantly in this film. Well, I think by the time he made the decision to do that, he already had you, right? He's yeah. figuring, well, I've already got the Kamlik brothers. I've got millions of other people. And if you don't like the movie already, then you're already not going to like the fact that I'm going to break away from this this thrilling scene. And it worked because we needed to hear the rest of that story. Um, and, you know, the whole Meryl swing away thing doesn't work until they explain all of that stuff. And it was just, that was phenomenal. I mean, I sit here, I'm looking at you, like, I don't understand how anybody doesn't think that's phenomenal. So another thing, and I, and I don't bring this up to bring, bring you down. And I promise you, we're going to end on a high note. And I hadn't really realized this until yesterday, but there's a lot of similarities between the, the bad stuff that happened to us and the bad stuff that happened to the Hess family. And, you know, these two kids, they lose their mom, like right in front of their house in a car accident which is, I mean, I was watching it yesterday and I kind of got just overwhelmed a little bit. I was like, boy, I didn't really see this. And I feel like I've watched signs since Mother's Day 2020, but I never really got the comparisons. And then, you know, I started looking at the, you know, the different things and he's, you know, when he's, I had these quotes written down, um, you know, he's like, believe it's going to pass. Here comes the air. And he's, when he's talking to, to the sheriff and she's like, she won't be saved and she doesn't feel much. And she's talking normal as if there's nothing's happened. And, you know, he's like, Caroline, is this the last time I'm going to talk to my wife? I mean, all those things really hit home for yep. the tragedy that, that the three of us and the rest of our family went through with mom. But I thought that was pretty cool. And then I had, uh, you know, we had talked about the family hug and like right up until that family hug. You know, he was really more business-like. Graham was all business-like. And then once that hug happened, then he really turned a corner. Then he was, you know, then he was trying to, he was all comfort all the time, which I thought was great. He's telling them about the stories of their births, which I read, and you probably read the same thing, that these were that these were actual stories of M. Night's kids' births, which I did not know until I did the research. I thought that was great. Um, I was going to ask you, what was Merrill's home run record? How many feet? Oh man, you got me on that. Uh, 507 feet. He hit it. He hit it on July 23rd, 1997. And the top movie on July 23rd, 1997. What do you think it was? And I will give you a hint. It has something to do with the the theme of this movie. I'm going to go contact. No men in black. Men in Black. Oh, Contact was, I think, the year before. Okay. Which is crazy. The best band name. If you and I had musical talents, the name of our band, you ready for this? Lionel Pritcher and the Wolfington Brothers. <laughs> Dude, that would be that would be sick. Right? And now, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together. Lionel Pritcher and the Wolfington Brothers. I had to look it up because I'm like, are they saying Wolf Brothers? They're like, it's Wolfington. Wolfington Brothers. That is the deepest of cuts, and it would be a, it would be a fantastic band name. Absolutely, hundred percent. And I also thought that Tracy Abernathy is such a great character name. Like it's like he's like from that one. Nobody talks to Tracy Abernathy. She's the young girl that works at the pharmacist, right? The, the yeah, pharmacy. She's like this is what like she's asking him like is this a swear? And he's like it depends how you use it. Like he's a douche. Then yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. Do you think that they should have had Ray Liotta as Shoeless Joe Jackson walk out of the corn to oh, make a cameo? Oh, man. Could you imagine? 
Like people would be like, what the, this is like, what is this? Can't end the podcast without saying the best quote from the movie. Which, I mean, geez, there's so many. Which one do you think, do you think is the best? The best quote of the movie. Here it is. Excluding the possibility that a female Scandinavian Olympian was running around our, our house outside. What else might be a possibility? And she's like, look, I don't appreciate your sarcasm. I don't appreciate your sarcasm. That is such a great line. When they're looking at the book and Mel Gibson's like, Dr. Bimbu. And he's like, dad, he's like, all I asked was his name. And he's like, he's like there was a tone. <laughs> Dr. Bimbu. That's hilarious. Apparently M. Knight's kids drew a lot of those alien drawings that are in that no book. Shit. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Saw that he's got, did you see that he's got three movie posters in his office? Did you read that? No. Now, again, I don't know when this was taken. It says M. Knight has in his office three movie posters. Indiana Jones and Raise of the Lost Ark, which I know you hate when people call it that, but that's what this news thing said. It's not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I don't want to get you started. We already covered that. The Exorcist and Die Hard. Interesting. Die Hard, the next episode for Back by Popular Demand right after this one. That's awesome. I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. And then the other thing, and this is out from my brother-in-law, John Moriarty, and all the baseball fans out there. They said there was a baseball inaccuracy. At the end of the movie, when Merrill is swinging the bat, the bat breaks. It shows the break being a somewhat clean break in the middle of the bat. Baseball bats do not break that way since they are made with the grain of the wood. This causes them to splinter when they break, and they break the weakest part of the bat. Is that true? When you break a bat, does it break down at the handle? Because they do show it right in the meat of the bat. The, the yeah, I mean, a lot of them, a lot of them, when you watch baseball, a lot of them break pretty low by the handles, but not not all of them. But I, I sort of feel like maybe I didn't look at it carefully enough whenever it happens. But um, maybe when you beat up an alien with it, it breaks differently. I thought Joaquin does a good swing. Like it looked real. It looked like he played baseball. When he walks into the living room at the end, because they send him to go get the asthma medicine. And yep. so Mel Gibson brings the TV in. You see the, the reflection of the alien. And, you know, Bo is standing there shocked. And when Merrill comes around the turn, like, la-di-da, we've been in the basement, whatever. And he sees it. And he just, like, I think it's in his left hand. And he just drops. He drops it. Stuff. And you were talking about how great the sound is. The sound of all that medicine and the, and the needle and the case and all that stuff hitting the floor, it was so good. Because it was just so quiet. And all of a sudden, it's like, he just lets it go. And I was like, that's good stuff. Oh, the ending of that movie is, I might fire that movie up when we, when we wrap up here. I might go back and watch it again. And he's like, <laughs> did some, like, what does he say? He's like, did somebody save me? He's like, yeah, baby, I think somebody did. Like, that's what people hate about it. They're like, it's cheesemo. I'm like, it's not cheesemo. It's great. It's the whole point of the film. I, and I was I mean, like, don't touch him. Don't touch him. And like, and, and, they, and then you show Joaquin, he's got his hand, his head's up in his head. And he's like crying. He's like, nobody touch him. Give him, give him, he's got to bring the air and he's going to get the air. And I'm like, oh my God, such good stuff. To think that he thought that through that this kid's lungs were, were already filled with fluid because he has asthma. Yeah. So the alien stuff didn't go in his lungs. That's, 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 this, this episode has turned into a love letter for M. Night. What have we left out? Anything? I, Man, I, I think uh, I, I think I covered, I, the only other thing I had is that they kept talking about Bo's dream. You know, they're like, could Bo had a dream that like that she saw Morgan die. And I wasn't sure, like, if I could talk to M. Knight, I'm like, where did that come in? Like, why was she, like what supernatural thing was happening that she was having a dream? But I guess that's the same level of how did the mom know when yep. she's having her last breath to let them know, you know, me, you know, Graham, C and Meryl tell them to swing away. So I guess I'll allow it. But it was an interesting little thing that kept saying Bo dreamed this. So I'm going to ask you, um, I said the same thing to Scott when we did Deliverance, but uh, 
your homework assignment is to start thinking about some other movies we want to do because uh, you know the the rules are anniversary year, so it doesn't have to be, but I prefer it to be. Okay. So we're talking like movies that came out in like you know eighty three. 88, 93, you know, just do it every five, but, you know, look it up one day. I'm looking around at my movie posters. I mean, you've never done a Bond movie. I have not. I think that would be sick. You know which one we would do if we were doing one. So. The best one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? The best one. That movie is, I want to say that came out in, what, 2006? Well, we might not be talking about that. Are you talking, are you talking about Skyfall or are you talking about Casino Royale? Casino Royale. Well, no, because sometimes when when I talk to people in a in a Bond you know dialogue, they're like they think that Skyfall is the best one. Skyfall is a great great movie, but I'm like always like what, before we go any further, what are we talking about? And they're like <laughs> Casino Royale. I'm like continue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be that could be interesting. That would be a lot of fun. Um, we'd have to we'll break the no anniversary uh, thing on that one, but uh, yeah, we'll give it some thoughts. Um, okay. Sleep on it. We'll. Uh, Listen, this was a lot of fun, man. I, I, I appreciate you coming back on the show and, and talking about signs. And I had every intention of getting this one out for Halloween. That was the goal. But uh, life and, and jobs got in the way, and I had, to, I had to push this back a little bit. So I apologize. But I'm glad we did this. This was a lot of fun. And Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, and uh, everybody, thanks for listening as always. And uh, Jim will definitely be back soon enough. And uh, the last episode of the year is going to be Die Hard, which is a big one. And my, my lifelong uh, friend, Steve Cosolino, is going to be my guest so I got to tell you, Jim, it's 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 stressful choosing the movies and choosing the guests, because as you said, right before we started recording tonight, that like everybody wants to do Die Hard. Like I, 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 I could if I could have eight guests talk about Die Hard, I would. But like, I don't know if that's going to make for a good episode. You need to reach out to your friendship circle and say, all right, come at me, pitch me a movie. Tell me <laughs> tell me your resume with this movie. Tell me your relationship with the movie, and then I will, I will, uh, I'll put it to good thought because that's what it is. But don't bring me a. I want to be on your pod. Bring me a vehicle, and then let's let's kick it around and let's see what we got. Let's see if there's a show. So you got to do. I, every time I, I do one of these movies, I try to find a personal connection to the to the guest in terms of why I you know why I want that person to talk to me about it. So there is a there is a bit of a thought process there, and I'm pretty sure I saw Die Hard with Steve when it came out in '88. Uh, but and he and I have a a little bit of a history with that movie, which we're going to get into. So I'm excited to talk about it. But anyway, it was great to see you, my friend. Thanks, my brother, as always. And uh, this was a blast. And uh, thanks again for listening, everybody. And we'll uh, we'll see you soon. You didn't used to play baseball, did you? Shit, I know you. You're Merrill Hess. I was there the day you hit that 507-footer over the left field wall. Set the record. Man, that thing had a motor on it. It's still the record, right? Got the bat at home on the wall. You've got two minor league home run records, don't you? Five. Why weren't you in the pros making stacks of cash and getting your toes licked by beautiful women? Because he has another record most people don't know about. He has the minor league strikeout record. Hello, Lionel. Merrill's a class A screw-up. He would just swing that bat as hard as he could every time. Didn't matter what the coaches said. Didn't matter who was on base. He would just whip that bat through the air as hard as he could. Looked like a lumberjack chopping down a tree. Merrill here has more strikeouts than any two players. You really got the strikeout record? Felt wrong not to swing.